Goodness gracious me, all I just love our church family. I just love our church family. And if it's not your church family, probably should be. You know what I mean? Probably ought to be. No, I'm, uh, man, I'm grateful that you're, you're here today. It's already been a great morning. We got more good things to come. Uh, we're going to go to one of those things now, which is God's Word. So if you will, open with me to the book of Acts. <clears throat> Acts chapter 4 is where we're going to be this morning. Acts chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 23 through 31 in our series through Acts, going from beginning of Acts, verse, chapter 1, verse 1, all the way to the end. Uh, we're in chapter 4 this morning. There's a conference. Yeah, I used to live in Louisville, Kentucky, and uh, when I was in seminary in Louisville, there was a conference that they would do there. That, it was a national conference, Christians from all over, and it was mainly for pastors and ministers that came from all over the place to Louisville. It was called uh, T4G, which is what you see on the screen behind me, that stands for Together for the Gospel. And I, I love that that kind of uh, shorthand for together for the gospel, because that's not just true of pastors. You know, that's true of our church family, is that we are a lot different. Everyone in this room is different, but we are together. We are one, unified, even if we're not uniform, we're together for the gospel. At that conference uh, in Louisville, uh, you know, picture 15,000 people or so, specifically people that are usually in the ministry, but not necessarily all of them. Um, At this together for the gospel conference, there's really good preaching, uh, really solid preaching, and you get to see some of your friends that maybe have gone to ministry assignments uh, elsewhere. But the best part of that conference is the singing. And I'm not a singer, but, but I, I mean, I sing, they always say, like, well, you can get on stage and sing. I sing every Sunday, right there. I'm going to stay singing right there. Uh, maybe that's you. I, I just love, while I don't love singing, I love singing in this context. I love singing here. There's just something special about lifting our voices and singing to praise God. It's biblical. You see this in God's Word. They sing the Psalms. That's what the Psalms were. They're they're songs where they praise God through what they read or what we read in Scripture. At this T4G conference, there was just something about, I mean, amazing preaching, but everybody walks away saying, wow, the singing. Because just picture especially the, the echo of male voices, because there's so many pastors there echoing, and how rare you hear that, right? And echoing in the walls of this massive, uh, the Yum Center in Louisville, where the Louisville basketball team plays. I mean, it's just an enormous place that is filled with praise. It's just an, an amazing um, occurrence. People coming together and loudly lifting their voices. That's what we want this to be, by the way. Uh, loudly us lifting our voices to God. The reason why we did that at that conference and the reason why we do it here every week is to remind ourselves of things, you know. These songs remind us of the truth. And it's like, well, I didn't forget. Yeah, but don't we? <laughs> don't we? We forget, and we need to be reminded of who God is and what he has done. Guys, since the church began, there has been something special about God's people coming together, coming together. That's why online church is an oxymoron, and that while it's a good thing to have, it should never be what we permanently go to, because there's something special about the church coming together. It's what made COVID so painful, because you watch and you think, well, this isn't the real thing. Yeah, no kidding, because the church is supposed to come together. And there are many watching right now, by the way, online, that wish they could come together. Because there's a longing in our spirit. Because God put that there. It's special to come together with the church. The passage we're looking at this morning, and have been looking at for a few weeks now, 
Despite the opposition of the Jewish leaders, which we've been reading about, Luke closes this narrative, which began, and by the way, at the beginning of chapter 3, he closes this narrative with a sound of hope, because we're going to see a theme begin here in this part of this, ch- this chapter that's going to really last for the rest of the book of Acts. And that theme is, what would the church's response be to persecution? This is where persecution begins. What would the church's response be to persecution? And the reason that's important is because it's not just supposed to be their response. It's our response. It should be our response to threats and persecution and opposition that we face in our world. They come together, and they're reminded of the truth. And so as we go forward, the reminder is that as we go forward, here's the big truth. God goes forward with us. He doesn't just go forward with us. He goes forward before us. And that's the good news. And we come together, and they came together here to celebrate that reality. Acts chapter 4, 23 through 31. Let's look at this neat, neat reality that they get to celebrate. When they were released, that's, that's Peter and John being released from, from being sort of imprisoned and put on trial. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. That's pretty sovereign, right? Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. He continues in verse 27. For truly in this city... There were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you appointed or anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Wow, what a, what a crazy verse, right? 29. And now, Lord, look upon the threats, their threats, and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you... Stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Just to quickly recap, they've healed, Peter and John have healed a man that was born lame. He couldn't walk. And their response to that is, hey, don't praise us. Let me, let me preach this gospel and tell you about who, who's really worthy of the praise, the one who's actually done this miracle. And so they begin to preach, and they say some things that kind of ruffle the feathers of a few important people, important people. The Sanhedrin, which is like the Jewish Supreme Court. This Supreme Court arrests uh, Peter and John, throw them in jail. The next morning, they have a trial. At that trial, they start to ask them questions, not about their doctrine, not about their theology, but instead about their power, because they have done something amazing, and authoritatively, they want to know where this came from. And in the midst of this trial, where they are now hurling threats at Peter and John and insults at Peter and John, the way that they conduct themselves is with boldness, not, not cowering, but with boldness, they respond to their threats. They then are released because they had, no, they had not broken any laws. They had nothing to stand on. And yet, much to the dismay of the Sanhedrin, this Jewish Supreme Court, their efforts to halt the gospel spreading only threw fuel on that flame, which we talked about last week. Today, we're going to see that the very threats that they issued to stop God's people will only serve to bring God's people together for the gospel. T4G, which I'm going to 
assert to you that today I want you to take away from this passage a couple of things as we consider what it means for us to come together. Number one, that we should come together to pray and praise. We should come together to pray and praise. To pray and praise. What I want you to see, and this is a neat formula, you, know, you may not see it just initially, but what I want you guys to see is that their response, what we're going to see, is determined by what they believe about God. The things that they say, what their response is, their boldness, is directly tied to what they believe about God. In other words, their behavior, and by the way, I'm going to argue that all of our behavior, our behavior, their behavior, it flows downstream from their doctrine. Behavior flows downstream from doctrine. What we do, how we act, what we say, how we think, it flows downstream from what we believe and what we think about God. And we certainly see this is the case when they face these threats in verses 23 and 24. It says, When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. They had threatened them. They said, knock it off, stop talking like that. And they threatened them, and they come back and report this to their friends. It says, And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together. Notice the togetherness there. They lifted their voices together to God and said, we'll pause there for just a moment. Peter and John know that this is not an empty threat. They know that this is the same group of people that threatened Jesus and Jesus had died. They had crucified him, put it up to Pontius Pilate to crucify Jesus, and the Romans carried that out. And so Peter and John know that this is not an empty threat. They know that the Sanhedrin means business. And so they go back, and they come together with fellow believers. But what's interesting is that they are not shaken. The response of these believers to the threats of men was not to get quiet and say, oh, we better just lay low for a while. What do they do? Lift their voices. They lift their voices to God. When I was in seventh grade, um, I homeschooled for a while, like first to sixth grade, because, I mean, my mom just couldn't get enough of me, which I get it. I mean, look at me. Um, but me and my, my siblings, I have three siblings, so there's four of us, and so we homeschooled a little bit, and then uh, for first to sixth grade, my mom sent, us back to, sent me back to public school in uh, seventh grade, and I, was, I lived in Clinton, Mississippi at the time, and I was at Clinton Junior High, and I went back, and like, it was like a whole new world I was unlocked to, and like, you got kids that are like 13, cussing up a storm, and I'm like, we're allowed to do that? Is this, uh, you know, and then everybody's kind of making bad choices, and I'm like, so this is public school, okay, and it was really culture shock for me, um, and then they started to kind of influence me badly. I wasn't saved yet, by the way. God saved my life when I was 15, but, but um, which is why I did bad things. I don't do bad things anymore. Um, I don't ever mess up. So I remember in seventh grade, though, sitting with uh, some of my friends at the lunch table, and we, we would, every day we'd go and grab a handful of these plastic forks uh, that they handed out for lunch, and I'd go and put them in my, put them, we'd put them in our pockets at lunch, and then as teachers and students would walk by, we'd take one out and pull back the prongs on the top and shoot them at people. And so the, the custodians loved us, I'm sure. Um, well, one day we got caught doing that, and I got sent to the principal's office for the first time. And that was a nightmare because I was a really good kid, and I behaved myself. I'm not kidding. I really was. I, I hated to disappoint authority. And so when I got sent to the principal's office, it was like the worst day of my life. Uh, and I was sitting next to my friend, and I was like, he, he put me up. To, I mean, this, it's him. He's a bad influence on me, you know. Uh, and we got in trouble, and when, whenever they sent us out, oh, goodness, it's not a big deal. It's not like somebody lost an eye. I guess they could have, but they didn't. And uh, the principal got on to us, and he sent us back. I don't even know if they told my parents. I probably told them because I felt so terrible. But my response to that was terror. 
my response to that was a ceasefire <laughs> of the prongs on the top of the forks. Man, I was pretty good with them too. I was like, you know, we, we transitioned from that to folding staples to a square and putting them on top of pencils and shooting them like that. So, but that's another story for another time. Uh, I was terrified and, and I had, had a ceasefire because of authority coming down on me. And that's what happens, right? The natural response to authority kind of coming down is that the threat of authority has the effect of laying low, stopping because of the threat of circumstances. And you'd expect a certain response from these guys being threatened by government authorities, they could have them killed. Go home, keep silent, lay low. But the opposite happens. Peter and John don't cower with fear. They get together with other believers, and they say what happened, and they praise, and they pray. They acknowledge that God's sovereign authority is over all things, including this authority that tells them to knock it off. They say, we've got a greater authority than that which we looked at last week. You see, they were turning over their struggles to the one over their struggles. There's something to that, right? They were turning over their struggles to the one over their struggles. Look at verses 25 and 26. They say, Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth, in verse 24, and the sea and everything in them, who, through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage? We're going to talk about this in a second. Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? Pointlessly plot is what that means. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against, notice gathered together, against the Lord and against his anointed. The believers turned their praise into prayer. They're quoting from Psalm 2, verses 1 and 2. The context of Psalm 2 is that Psalm 2 spoke of who would oppose, the people that would oppose Israel's king and thus oppose God. And so this is Old Testament stuff, right? You have these people that would oppose Israel's king, therefore opposing God. It mentions rulers and kings and uh, lots of different people. You have Gentile rulers that gathered together, Jewish rulers that gathered together. By the way, in verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 5, which we looked at, I think, uh, a couple weeks ago, uh, look what it says, chapter 4, verse 5. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together. The reason that's important is because when you look at what it says in, in verse 26, the rulers were gathered together. It's the same word. Luke is meaning to sort of put a hyperlink there to say the opposition gathered against God in the Old Testament and the opposition is gathering against God in the New Testament. It says in verse 25, why did the Gentiles rage? We know what rage is, right? It's like this really intense, fiery anger. But that word, that word for rage would be used for, to refer to horses who buck and throw their heads before their rider eventually tames them. That's what, that, it was like a rage, it was throwing and fitting, but at the end of the day, the rider was going to have his way. Or maybe a more pertinent example, this rage, this word of, of kicking his, the head and throwing whatever, that's what our son Shepherd does when I'm trying to change his diaper. You know what I mean? He's strong, but daddy's stronger. You know, he arches his back and kicks his legs. And I'm like, son, you're going to lose this. Because you know what always happens? The diaper ends up on him. Because dad always subdues. I always end up subduing him. And he puts up a pretty good fight, but he's weak at the end of the day. He's just a baby. I mean, what do you expect? Guys, that's the point. Is that this word for rage is kicking and bucking. But at the end of the day, God subdues his enemies, doesn't he? God always subdues his enemies. They can fight against him. They can rage against him, but they will never defeat our God. They will be subdued, and the same is true of God's church. 
The same is true of God's church. Look at verses 27 and 28. He says, for truly. The reason that's important is because what he's about to say is, here's an example of this Old Testament reality that people oppose, but God prevails. He says, for truly, so a ground statement, for truly in this city, the same thing has happened. There were gathered together, same word, gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod, by the way, that would be a, a king, and Pontius Pilate, that would be a ruler, along with Gentiles, you see, and peoples. What he's saying is he's taken this exact formula and said the same thing that happened then, kings, rulers, Gentiles, and the peoples, has happened in the New Testament reality today. These people have gathered against Jesus, against God's anointed. While the enemies gather together to oppose Jesus, we see that the church gathers together to worship him. Verse 28 says that those enemies gathered together to do whatever, and please just let these words soak in, to do whatever your hand and your plan, your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Now listen, this is, here's what that doesn't mean. It doesn't mean they didn't do something bad. Peter has just gotten done preaching sermon after sermon saying, they're wicked, they're evil, they've, they've brought an onslaught against the holy God. They've crucified the Son of God. He is bringing a, a huge onslaught of, of, of wicked accusation against them, wicked violence against God. And yet, he says, in the same breath, those things happen by God's hand, by God's plan. He predestined them. Because the reality is, that's two sides of the same coin. Man was at fault, right? Man was absolutely at fault. Peter has called them out for it. They were responsible. By their own will, they chose to do evil. But God is sovereign over the evil of man. It reminds me of Joseph's story in Genesis, which covers several chapters. I wish I could really get into it and unpack it. But Joseph is a neat story in the later part of Genesis. Joseph is favored by his father, Jacob. Favored by his father, and yet his brothers turn on him. He's sold into slavery by his brothers who were jealous of him. He's then faithful to his master, Potiphar, as a slave, faithful to his master. And as a result of his good behavior, he is falsely accused of gross sexual misconduct by his master's wife. He is then, as a result of that, imprisoned <clears throat> in Egypt through no fault of his own. Years go by. He's been disowned by his family, hurt by his brothers, sold into slavery, accused of wrongdoing he did not do, and now he is in an Egyptian prison for years. And in the midst of all of that, Joseph never blamed God. He never turned on God. And God gives him then a supernatural interpretation of a dream of the king of Egypt. As a result of that, Joseph is given a high position, but not among his people, but among Egyptians. What happens in his story is that his backstabbing brothers are impacted by a famine in their land. They're forced to go to Egypt and find themselves groveling at the feet of the brother who has now been put in a high position over all the food. They grovel at his feet and they say, we need, we need, we need at the feet of the brother that they thought was dead. And when revenge would be justified, in fact, you expect to read that next and then Joseph just let them have it. That's not what you read. Joseph instead shows them mercy. And there's a verse that is so good, that is so pertinent to what we're reading today. Genesis 50 verse 20, it says, as for you, Joseph speaking to his brothers, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. 
Something recently was pointed out to me by a pastor friend of mine, and that is that that verse does not say that God used their evil for good. You notice that? It does not say that God used their evil for good. It means that God meant their evil for good. The very evil act of men was not just cleverly used by God. It was the sovereign plan A of God for the evil will of men, which they did commit to bring about God's will of blessing for his people. Because that story goes on and on and on. The next thing that we read about is that through Joseph's suffering, Israel is sustained. They move to Egypt as a nation of 70 people, and then later, 400 years later, they exodus from Egypt by the hand of God as a nation of millions. Does God mean evil for good? Does God use evil to advance his purposes? Yes or no? And I've hand-selected one example of that. But we could look at dozens and dozens and dozens, not just from here, but maybe from your life. If this didn't happen, I would have never been able to minister to this person. You see what I'm saying? God doesn't just use evil things. He purposes them, that they can be assets in his hand to minister and to bless his people. Because not only does opposition not stop God's plans for his people, wildly enough, it pushes his plans forward. In this book that we're reading, the book of Acts, persecution will become severe. Later, Philip will be pushed by these threats to go to Samaria. You know what's going to happen in Samaria? He doesn't lay low and cower and dig a hole. He preaches to crowds, and people come to know Jesus because of Philip's persecution. Later in this book, Ananias will travel about 200 miles away from home to Damascus, and what does he do? He just hides, doesn't he? Nope. Ananias goes 200 miles to Damascus, and you know who shows up at his doorstep? the biggest persecutor of the church that we see in the New Testament, Saul. Ananias is freaked out. But what does God do through that? He takes an evil man with evil intentions, and God brings him to his knees. And while Ananias was driven away because of persecution, through him, God sees to it that Saul, the persecutor of the church, becomes Paul, the builder of the church. The Gentiles rage. It's all in vain. Enemies rage, they buck their heads and they kick and they scream. But God will subdue his enemies, amen? Amen? You better believe he will. Guys, why is God's sovereignty, his control, why is it good news in the presence of man's opposition? Because even the nastiest acts of men will not stand and cannot thwart that God sovereignly purposes, to quote a verse that you may know, all things for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purposes. You heard me say all things, right? All things, even evil things. Even the persecution happening against the church in our world will advance, not deter the gospel. So many cultural movements where you look around, look at social media, look at the news, mainstream media, you hear the conversations around the water cooler, and you hear about how out of touch Christians are, and that they just need to be taxed out the wazoo so we can shut their doors, and you see that church numbers, it seems like, are, are closing the doors and they're declining, Christians are declining. Don't you see, if what we are talking about is true, is that God will use that for greater good, not for worse. I know that sounds wild and upside down, but listen, this is an age-old truth, and it will persist for a long, long time until Jesus returns, and that is this, that where faith is easy, it is weak. 
Where faith is easy, it is weak. And in our culture, day by day by day, is faith becoming harder and harder and harder? Is it becoming more difficult and more difficult to say, I align with Jesus, even if that comes with consequences? Does it? Does it? Where faith is easy, it is weak. But listen, where faith requires boldness, the Spirit moves. That's why the church in China is exploding. Because where faith is hard, God moves. Where it requires boldness, God moves. And it's why in the Bible Belt, you got a whole bunch of people that call themselves Christians that are pretenders because it's easy. Is it such a bad thing that it becomes hard to be a Christian? Think about it. The early church, it was hard to call yourself a believer. You were behind enemy lines. And what did God do with that? An explosion. We live in the country where it is the easiest that it has ever, ever been to align yourself with Jesus. And we're finding that people talk one way, and they ain't really about it because it's easy. And I'm here to tell you that as faith gets harder, this church will get stronger. Where faith gets harder, this church will get stronger. Guys, our response, take one from here. Please listen. Our response to what happens out there at your workplace, at your school, in your friend group, so-called, what happens out there, our response to that, listen, should not be panic. It should be prayer. It shouldn't be panic. It should be prayer. It shouldn't be worry. It should be worship. That's what's happening here. They don't go back and say, oh, man, we're starting to sweat. They go back and say, let's cry out to God. Let's praise God that he's sovereign over these things. And I know it's so easy to say I trust God, but I mean it. When you cannot see the light at the end of the tunnel, do you trust him? When you don't see the path forward, do you trust him? Is it possible that the same God who meant years in an Egyptian prison for good means your trial for good as well? Is that possible? I think so. What is your first response to anything that challenges your faith, your obedience? Is it prayer? Is it praise? Or is it panic? Is it worry? Or is it worship? There are so few things that you can really bank on in this life, you can bank on God being exactly who he says he is. For you, not against you. Over your struggles, not under them. Prayer and praise. When people come together, that's what they do. Coincidentally, that's why we come together, church. And when they do that, God moves, which is the second thing. They come together to see God move. But notice the first one comes first. They pray and they praise. And then God says, I received that. Now watch this. He doesn't pour out and then they say, thank you, God. We praise you, God. No, God wants the faith. And then he moves. And he's done this for a long time. The bold resolve and the faith of these Christians is on display here. But I want you to see something very important. Again, their behavior is downstream from their doctrine. Prayer and praise, they flow from the understanding that God reigns. You don't get to the request we're about to read in a moment without the first part of praising God and recognizing that he is over the bad things. 
Psalm 2, Psalm 2, the passage that they quoted just a minute ago in verses 25 and 26. The other verses, which, I mean, they're quoting it, and, and I would say they're probably quoting the whole thing. They're probably reading Psalm 2 in their midst. We have a couple of these verses. It says that they said, don't you know that everybody was saying all kinds of things? But it says they said this. It's summarized for us, and I'm going to argue that they probably read Psalm 2 or sang Psalm 2 in there in its entirety. I want to tell you a little bit of the other things that Psalm 2 probably, or that they may have mentioned, and I know that it does say this. It talks about God laughing at Old Testament opposition. It talks about God terrifying opposition. It talks about God breaking opposition to pieces, causing them to perish. But I want you to see something, that the church does not pray for those things. The church doesn't pray that God would terrify them, that God would laugh at them, that God would break them to pieces, cause them to perish. The church prays for courage, that the gospel, that the word would go forth. And there's something to that. Look at verses 29 through 31. And now, Lord, so here's their request. In light of that, in light of who you are, you're over this, you've, you've predestined these things to take place, you are over the struggle. Now, Lord, look upon their threats and take them out. Now, that's not what he says. Grant to your servants to continue. Wow. Grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, watch God move. The place in which they were gathered together was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak, with, speak the word of God with boldness. It says grant boldness. It's their resolve to do as verses 19 and 20 have said that we looked at last week. Verses 19 and 20 said, when they were facing these threats, Peter and John answered them, Whatever, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, we cannot, or you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. What this means is that we go with God even if it means going against the authorities. That's what Peter's saying. We go with God even if it means that we go against the authorities. Notice that it says, give us boldness while you go and stretch out your hand. Give us boldness. Not, not give us a stretched out hand. Give us the boldness and we watch you work. Guys, our calling is not to be world changers. Your calling is not to be a world changer. Your calling is to be faithful in all circumstances. We want to obsess over the fruit. We want to see things change. That's not up to you. You're to be faithful. You trust the one who can stretch out his hand and make mountains move. Guys, going with God will mean that you may have to go against media or social media. Going with God may mean that you have to be on the opposite side from your peers or the opposite side of the court of public opinion. It may mean that you receive name calling, people saying you're part of the problem. The culture may paint you as a religious nut. The government one day could lead to unfair taxation or even imprisonment for those that follow Jesus. Will you be faithful? Where faith is easy, faith is weak. Where it's challenged, the Spirit moves. 
You can't get past the fact that it says, while you stretch out your hand. Love those pronouns, you, your, your stretch, you stretch out your hand to heal signs, wonders. Guys, the gospel movement does not go forward because the gospel people are educated, powerful, wealthy, attractive, and cool. The gospel moves forward because the God of all power and authority fills his people as they rely on him. I'll say it again. Our calling is not to be world changers. What you are called to do is to boldly continue in faith that God will do what you cannot. It's easy to, to forget this, that this is all a prayer. This passage is all God's people praying. It's all a prayer. Many of you guys have, have come to my office um, and talked about membership or maybe even come to my house um, back before my house was a zoo and that was hard to do. I like to have you guys to my house to talk membership or church. That's hard to do now. And so I usually do that in my office. And many of you have done that, whether it be you as an individual or you and perhaps your spouse have come and talked about joining this body of believers. Um, a lot of you guys treat it like it's the principal's office, like he popped prongs off of forks or something. I don't know. Um, it's not that intimidating. You can just come chill with me and we'll talk about how cool the church is. But anyway, um, whenever I have those conversations, and many of you have, have had this conversation with me, there's something that I told you that I'll say now. And I want you to know if you haven't had that conversation with me, I want you to hear me say this. And that is that every time we see the Spirit of God move in a major way in the book of Acts, prayer is involved. Every time we see the Spirit of God move in a major way in this book, which is the story, the narrative of the early church, prayer was involved. And the reason I say that in our membership to conversations is because I want them to say, or I want them to understand, you're not just a receiver here. We want you to pray for our church. Pray for your brothers and sisters. Pray for your pastors. Pray for the praise team. Pray for your Sunday school teacher. Pray for those that are serving. Pray for those that are in the nursery to pray. Pray, pray, pray. And that's not just saying, I want you to do the things that the Bible says. Do the disciplines. That's not what I'm saying. I want you to do that because the Spirit of God moves when people pray. There's evidence of this. And if you want God to move in a powerful way here at this church, if fellowship wants to see lives changed, we must come together and plead to the only one who can change lives. You think good preaching changes lives? It doesn't. You think good music changes lives? It doesn't. They could come up here and perform an amazing song. And if God is not in that song, it's vain. If the gospel is not in this sermon, it's vain. Because good preaching and good music and good programs do not change lives. God changes lives. And if we want God to move in our church, and he has... We better be a praying church. We better be a praying church. And if you've been dropping the ball on that, it's time to step up to the plate, man. It's time to step up. It's not a guilt trip. It's me encouraging you and saying, if you want to see God do big things, this isn't a hook, line, and sinker thing, but it, it's, it is an evaluatable truth that when people pray, God works. And if you want eyes to see the workings of God, Speak his language, and he'll give you eyes to see how he works. You will have eyes to see power in your walk with Christ if there is prayer in your walk with Christ. And that's what the church does. When we come together and we pray together, it's not a commercial, a transition. People go down from the stage, come up. 
There's a powerful working of God. But I sure hope that you're not only just praying with us in here, but that you're going in the power of the Spirit of God to pray and see him move. In their prayer, and I think that this is really interesting, God's already made his will clear to them, you know. They're praying for God's will to happen. Give us boldness to be witnesses. Didn't Acts 1-8, which is the theme, the thesis verse of this book, God's already told them his plan. Jesus said to them in Acts 1-8, you will go, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. He's already told them. He's told them his will. But you know what they're praying? That God would do that. That's weird, right? Why are they praying God's will if they already know it? Because praying for God's will shows that we are ready to submit to that will. Praying for God's will is, ready, is, is saying that we are ready to submit to his plan. It isn't for God's adjustment. We don't pray for God's adjustment to our plan. It is for our alignment to his plan. That's why we pray. Not so that God would be coerced into doing what we wanted to do. It's so we could say, God, align me to you. Give me an understanding heart of what you are doing. Prayer prepares our hearts for the highs and lows that God will bring. Prayer is a relational step of forward faith into the unknown path that he has set before you. And what happens is that the Holy Spirit honors their request by making himself evident in their midst. Notice what doesn't happen here is that the people are not shaken. (laughs) It doesn't say the people are shaken. It says the very ground they stand on is shaken. Something to that. How may God honor the hard prayers of faith of his people? He honored these hard prayers of faith. How will God honor yours? You know, I'm a parent of four. Brooke and I are, they don't give you a handbook, you know. We just kind of shoot from the hip and hope it works out. (laughs) Um, Parenting's hard. And many of you know that. Many of you will know that. Um, Sam and Landry, you're about to know that. Um, Parenting's hard. And we all know that's the case. But, you know, you never really feel that until it happens, right? It's really hard to watch your child get hurt, isn't it? It's hard to watch your child get hurt. But I think most of the people in this room know this, that while it seems upside down, keeping your child from pain and keeping them from difficulty, does that make them stronger or weaker? It's weird, right? Keeping your child from hard things, immense weight, struggle, pain, it hurts them, it doesn't help them. And as a parent, you learn that the hurt is hard to allow, but that it's for the good of the child. Do you not think that that same principle applies to our father, us, his children? God knows a little something about patiently bearing sorrow to bring about a greater blessing, doesn't he? Romans 5, 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, enemies of God is what that means. Christ died for us. Guys, if Jesus did not endure the pain of sorrow, we would never know the joy of salvation. You see how God lays the foundation for that? That undergoing hard things, that's how God paves the way to greater things. God loves you. 
He proved that when he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for you, he knows a little something about suffering because he bore the sins of the world so that he could offer you forgiveness for those sins, a substitution. He goes in our place in death so that we could have his place in eternal life. And he was gloriously resurrected to prove that that sacrifice was all that it was claimed to be. That's the invitation. That's what God has for you because he knows a little something about sorrow that leads to great joy, celebration. God has always used great trials to bring about greater triumphs. The father looked on as his son suffered more than you and I ever will. And his love for his child, please don't miss this, his love for his son did not waver then. And if you are his child and you're going through it, it doesn't waver now. That principle still applies to us. God sees you in your sorrow. He has not abandoned you. Will you pray a prayer of faith today? A hard prayer. A prayer that trusts him. It isn't for God's adjustment to our plan. It's for our alignment to his. And when Joseph was in a prison for two years, wondering what in the world God was doing, when he'd done nothing wrong, he trusted God. And through him, God delivered the 70 of his family, but also delivered on his promise that he would make this a great nation, Israel. That's not you. But I know that many of you are going through it right now. And you feel like you're in a figurative prison, perhaps. The shackles of a depression or a loss or grieving. It's like, when is this going to let up? I don't know. But there's something to the fact that God's people pray a prayer of boldness, even in the middle of it. And the very next thing after they did that was that God poured out a ground-shaking, literally, movement of the Spirit. Today, where faith is weak, where faith is easy, it ain't worth nothing. Where it is tested, it's strong. Today, many of you are being tested in your faith. My encouragement to you is to see with eyes of faith that God is not harming you. He's watching the hurt as a parent, knowing that you will be stronger on the other side of that. He knows that as a parent. And we can praise him for that.